Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 4. Where no oxen are, the manger is clean, but much revenue comes by the strength of the ox. Everything in its place, and a place for everything. Is that your motto? Anybody here who has that as their motto? And then there's the other people who don't even notice if there's a mess. They can walk by a sink full of dishes and not even see it. Which one of those is you? You don't have to raise your hand. I just want to have you identify yourself within. Of course, we all need some kind of order in life, don't we? We need to plan. We need to depend on people. We need them to behave in certain ways as they are expected. We want events to unfold the way we hope that they do, more or less anyway. We all count on finding our car keys in the morning. There are some things that we sort of depend on to be orderly. But as our text points out, life is messy. So as we look at this text, Proverbs 14, verse 4, I'd like to make three observations from this text about this fallen world. This fallen world in which God is busy in the process of redemption. He's redeeming this world. And in this world, the wise know that they have to put up with messes. And I'll look at three things. They have to put up with messes in order to be fruitful, in order to love, in order to serve, in order to be partners with God in the work that he's doing. Proverbs 14, verse 4. So here's the first one that we can look at, that a fruitful life is going to be messy. Count on it. Our text makes you sort of smile, doesn't it? It sort of slyly tells you a truth about life that you probably already know. Where no oxen are, the manger is clean, but much revenue comes by the strength of the ox. Manger is the feeding trough, or the word could also refer to the stall in which, let's say, the ox or the cattle are kept. And if there's no ox there, Well, what do you do? You clean it out or it's empty. There's no dung there. There's no mess. There's nothing to clean up. And it stays that way. It's quite wonderful. So the paraphrase might be something like this. Without oxen, a stable stays clean and orderly. But bad news for neatniks and germaphobes, you need a strong ox for a good harvest. There's a tension there. Matthew Henry writing in the 17th century. Isn't that amazing? His writings, his commentaries are still read. They're still published and still bought. That's a fruitful life. And here's what he says. He says that this verse is really a poke against those who approach life the way a gentleman farmer approaches farming. Likes the idea of being a farmer, but doesn't want to deal with the flies and the manure and the dirt under his fingernails. It's not going to work very well, is it? Because a fruitful life is messy. You have to get used to it. At this point, I think messy people are falling in love with this verse. You know, Teenagers who are bothered all the time by their mom saying, clean your room, are thinking, you know what, I'm going to frame this verse and put it on my door. I don't even have to answer anymore. I think you can do it. I think there's truth in that. But others are asking, Isn't there supposed to be order? Don't we need predictability? Don't we need schedules? 
Don't we need cleanliness in life? Isn't that essential to just living life? I think we realize there's a tension here, isn't there? Some of you have experienced, have had the experience, I should say, of your kids flying off, leaving home. And what happens? Well, when they leave home, the house stays clean. The dishes are always done. There's always food in the fridge. It's amazing. On the other hand, the whole house echoes with emptiness. There's a tension there, isn't there? If you don't take on any responsibility, don't make any decisions, you'll never fail. You'll never be wrong. You'll never be criticized. On the other hand, you'll never accomplish anything. There's this tension there, isn't there? So this proverb is not really about encouraging people to be messy as though that's the goal or to be neat as though that's the goal. In fact, that's the problem. It's really about priorities. It's picking at those who get sidetracked, keeping the stall clean and forget the farm. I don't know, you ever do that? You have work to do, but you spend all your time cleaning your desk? You get sidetracked. I, I love the flower decorations we have here every week. They're beautiful. But I've been here on Saturday nights when they've been arranged. Oh man, what a mess it is. There's like leaves all over the place, stems, petals. It's a mess. And what if you said, pick up this mess? No, the focus is on arranging the flowers and in time you clean up the mess. It's not the priority. It's not the most important thing. So we can get messed up. We want to have rules so everybody knows exactly what to do and when to do it. We can get absolutely stuck on maintaining a schedule as though the schedule was the very word of God. And it can become an end in itself. We can forget what our goal was. You know, you can keep your kitchen clean by never cooking. But what's the point of the kitchen then? You're going to starve. So we can forget the point of all these things and get sidetracked. That's what this text is saying. So the first thing, simple thing, is that a fruitful life is going to be messy. I think that's clear from this parable. But let's just apply it, secondly, that loving others is going to be messy. They're part of life. And I'll look at, first of all, just as an illustration of this parenting. Parenting is showing love to your children, and it's a messy business. In fact, let me give you some reasons. I'll give you three reasons why it's messy. Uh, the first is easy because kids are like oxen. They're messy. <laughs> they're people. And they're like oxen. I, oh, man, I burnt holes, as I said last week, in my mother's furniture. I scratched the wood. I broke so many windows, I can't even tell you. Ripped my pants all the time. I was a mess. Kids are messy. Growing up, living room, I'd come home in the evening and, you know, there'd be, all the furniture would be moved, there'd be ropes tied between chairs, blankets. Oh, we're making a tent. It's a mess. Guess who gets to clean it up at the end of the day? Did you ever have kids get on a toboggan on the staircase inside the house and see if that would work? <laughs> They're like oxen. What are they thinking? They make a mess everywhere. It's like, in fact, I was remembering that scene from The Cat in the Hat. Do you remember that book, Cat in the Hat? The only wise one is the goldfish. And the goldfish says, no, 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 make that cat go away. He should not be here. He should not be about. He should not be here when your mother is out. Boy, what a mess he makes. Here's the first and obvious reason why raising kids is a messy business, because, well, kids are messy. 
The second is because you're fighting against their very nature. Proverbs 22.15 says, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. It's in them. Little kids think they are gods. The world revolves around them. What they want, they have a right to, and they have a right to it right then. And so in disciplining your children, you're trying to dethrone a god. It's not easy to do. But imagine if you didn't do it. Imagine if they grew up and were the same way. They grew up throwing tantrums every time they didn't get their way. They were angry and demanded and aggressive to make a way for themselves to get exactly what they wanted. Threw things if they didn't have their way. They yelled and screamed when they were angry. Can you imagine that? Of course you can, because there's adults like that, right? It happens, right? It's dangerous not to discipline your child, because without discipline, children become a heartache to everyone. That's what Proverbs 10, verse 1 says, a foolish son is a grief to his mother. And that happens if it's a foolish son, he's a grief, or if it's a foolish daughter, she's a grief, not just when they're young, but all through life. It's heartbreak. And for everyone who has to deal with that child. But on the other hand, it says in 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he will not depart from it. You're building a certain kind of character into that child. You're teaching him about life. You're telling him, you're teaching her. She's not God. There are other people in this world, and there's a true God. Worship him. So it's hard. It's messy to raise children because you're fighting their very nature. But What's more, you're finding, you might say, the very nature of the world. You're going against the grain of the world. Nowhere are they going to be encouraged to honor God the way you're trying to teach them to do. Romans 1 is an expression of a world that denies God and how understanding is darkened as a result of that. You're trying to teach them a different way. What do you do on Sunday? Who in the world thinks that Sunday morning should be reserved for worship? We're going against the whole grain of the world by even being here this morning. We're teaching our children to do that. What do you do with money, my son or my daughter? How do you teach them? How do you teach your children about gender and sex and about marriage? And how do you teach them how to genuinely love and respect and honor those who have not yet come to live out the values of the Bible, which Jesus himself has put his signature on. How do you teach them that? I don't care if you're left or right in politics, really. That's not what this is about. This is about very deep divisions. For example, it's about answering this question. Is there a God and has he spoken? What they hear is that the answer to that is no. Our, our job is to grope around using our reason to find the best way to live, the best way to define ourselves, the best way to come up with values that we can live by, and whatever science, whatever other sources of understanding there are, use that as evidence to guide our reason. And that's all there is. And we have to not just teach them, we have to persuade them deeply. This is what's messy. To just declare it is one thing, but to persuade them is the messy business. We have to Persuade them that there is a creator. This whole world, whether the natural world or our own nature, makes no sense without the reality of a creator. And that this creator has a purpose. He has a purpose for the way we use our time. 
He has a purpose for the way we use our money and our goods. He has a purpose for marriage. He has a purpose for creating you a boy or a purpose for creating you as a girl. And not only does he have that purpose, how do we find it? He's spoken. He's revealed that purpose to us in the scriptures. And that simple statement that there is a God and he has spoken is contrary to the whole grain of the culture, the whole grain of the world. And it makes disciplining our children a difficult task. It's two worlds in collision. It's much more difficult than simply teaching our children, eat your peas and do your homework. That's simple. Here we're introducing them to what it means to live in a world ruled by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So, yeah, disciplining is hard. You're going to be going against the grain of the world. What do you do? Well, you give up, don't you? Sometimes you just give up. It's so tiring because it's such a long task. Kids are misbehaving. It's the end of the day. You're tired. You just want to sink into the sofa. And so you say, you know, just go spank yourself and put yourself to bed. I don't care. <laughs> just don't want to deal with it anymore. It's hard work. But Scripture says that in that case, their precious lives are wasted. It means you don't love them enough. That's what Scripture says. You don't love them enough because it's hard and messy work to discipline them. It says, 1324, he who loves him, loves his son or daughter, is diligent to discipline. It's an expression of love. And so 1918 says, discipline your son for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. Wow, those are hard words. It's saying, if you don't discipline them, you're condemning this child. A wasted life. You don't want to do that. 2017 says, discipline your child and he will give you rest. It's future tense, by the way, you notice. It's not going to be right away. There's hard work, but then there's a reward. He will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. That's what it's saying. And oh, this happens. They grow up and they bring such rich blessings into your life that you think you don't even deserve it. Oh God, how did I end up with such blessings? All the work you did was, at the end, nothing compared to the return on that investment. And you're so glad you put your time in. Loving is messy work. Loving children is messy work. That's what this text is saying. But not just children. I think in general, relationships in general are messy, messy things. Let's just think about marriage for just a second. That's one of the relationships that is the most intimate, most important. It's the nest, really, in which children grow. A strong marriage is the prerequisite for strong children. But sometimes in marriage, you know what? It's like farming. There's good years, and there's bad years, and there's great years. It's going to happen. I know, I know, you're thinking of the fairy tale. Forget the fairy tales. It's not happily ever after. Yeah, it's happy and not so happy and very happy. It changes. There's seasons. There's weeds that grow up. Busyness, work, and they choke out your passion for each other. There's worms and there's pests which try to seduce you away from each other. That's reality. That's the way this fallen world is. So we have to work at it. Proverbs 5, 18 and 19 says, Rejoice in the wife of your youth. And of course, as I've said before, this is addressed to men, so we could say the same thing to the women. Rejoice in the husband of your youth. 
Isn't it sad, by the way, if I can give an aside, isn't it sad that I can't read the rest of the verse without a big apology? It's God's word, but I'm going to read it. You have to close your ears, you can. It says, Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. See what it's saying? This is God's gift. Give yourself to it. This is the field that you have to work in. So weed and water and nurture this love. And the rewards will come. Love is messy. That's what it's saying. You know, the easiest way to live, our proverb says, is to have no oxen. Because then you don't ever have to go out and clean it. You don't ever have to worry about it. And the truth is, just like children, people are like oxen. They're messy. And because our relationships are with people, relationships are messy. Chapter 14, verse 10, talks about the complexity of the emotional life of everyone that's in your life. It says, the heart knows its own bitterness, and no stranger shares its joy. Think about that. You get a whole church full of people with these complicated emotions boiling around inside of them, and you know there's got to be messy problems. You're bound to say the wrong thing at the wrong time because you don't know what's going on. You don't know what's happening in the secret nooks and crannies of people. You're bound to hurt someone when you don't mean to. You're bound to step on toes. It's a messy business because love is messy for the simple reason that it connects us to messy people. No relationship is going to be without this mess. Some of you maybe remember Simon and Garfunkel sang this song decades ago. It was a lament of someone who thought he had found a way to escape all the heartache by avoiding all these messy relationships. He said, if I never loved, I never would have cried. I have no need of friendship. Friendship causes pain. It's laughter and it's loving I disdain. I am a rock. I am an island. Where there are no people, the stall is clean. But then there's no love. Of course, I am an island, Paul Simon stole from a very ancient poet compared to him. Several hundred years earlier, John Donne used that as the title of a poem he wrote. This famous 17th century poet and pastor. He was a pastor. He, he had within him the wisdom of scripture. And he said the opposite. Here, here's what he wrote. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind and therefore never sent to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. See what he's saying? It's messy. Yeah, we share our joys, which is wonderful, but he, he's saying that one person's trouble disturbs every other person's life also. It makes it messy. Our neat little world is disturbed by the mess that anybody else is experiencing, the tragedy, the grief, the challenge that anybody else is experiencing. That's why Romans 12, 15 says to us as Christians, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. People are messy, so relationships are messy because love is messy. So that's one thing about this proverb. Fruitful life is messy. Loving others is messy. But I could 
close by saying serving God is messy. You say, no, no, I'm doing everything God wants me to do. My life should be orderly and organized. No, serving God is messy. People were appalled at Jesus' ministry. You can just read the Gospels and it becomes clear that there was controversy after controversy because Jesus' ministry, if I can put it in quotes, was so messy from their perspective. He was breaking all the boundaries. He was breaking all the rules of polite society. He ate with sinners. He touched lepers. He hobnobbed with outcasts. Just don't do that. It's not the right way for a rabbi to behave. So earlier in the service, you know, John chapter 4 was read. It's Jesus speaking to a Samaritan woman. And the text explicitly says in verse 9 that, remember, Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans. That's the rule. That's the boundary. It's been established for generations. And yet here was Jesus speaking to a Samaritan and a woman at that. He was ignoring those neat categories, just running roughshod over them. But that mess, if I can call it that, was necessary to bring this woman to the truth about the God who rules heaven and earth. And there's example after example in the Bible. In Acts chapter 10, Peter has a vision in which God tells him to eat animals, animals which Paul considered, uh, Peter rather considered dirty. We would say filthy. They probably, probably nauseated him to even think of eating these things. And not only was he to eat these animals, but he was to eat them with a Gentile, which was going to make him defiled, unclean, dirty, you see, messy spiritually. And not only with a Gentile, but with a Roman, the enemy, the one who had conquered his homeland. And Peter said, no, 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 I don't do that. You know, I, I keep things clean, neat, and orderly. I don't cross those forbidden boundaries. I don't get dirty in that way. And yet, it was the way that the gospel of Jesus was going to spread, breaking all those boundaries and go into all the world. The work of God is messy. In fact, not only those kinds of things, but the, the great work of God was messy. The cross was a dirty, messy business. It wasn't pretty. It wasn't uh, a gold cross around our chain, uh, around our necks and a chain. It was a messy business. The Old Testament sacrifices were a picture of that, weren't they? They prefigured what that sacrifice of Jesus really meant. As you read those descriptions, you have to imagine what it was like. The beautiful temple, yeah, with marble everywhere, and yet the courtyard was filled with what? Animals bleeding and crying out. What kind of mess were they making? What do animals do when you have a whole herd of them? And then they were being slaughtered. There was blood everywhere and flies and smoke as the sacrifices were burnt. It was a picture of the reality to which they pointed, which was the cross of Jesus. A man broken and whipped and bloody with, with nails through his limbs on a cross being mocked and laughed at as people walked by, his, his mouth parched, unable to take a breath, parched because he was slowly bleeding to death. Dirty. Filthy, hard to look at. It's what Isaiah prophesied, though, didn't he? Isaiah 53, that the great work of God, the redemption of his people, would be accomplished in just this way. It may or may not surprise you to hear that in the recent past, last few decades, there have been some theologians who have been talking about 
the cross and saying, you know, we really shouldn't talk about the blood and the, the cruelty and the suffering of Christ on the cross and how this was the penalty for sin. It, it's all wrong. It, it's violent. It's uncomfortable. It's cruel. We shouldn't really be talking about it. But how, how would you paraphrase our text, Proverbs 14.4, to reply to them? Maybe something like this, where there is no cross, the worship is empty. But redemption and life come from the death of Christ. See, God's work, God's great work in this world, in this fallen world, is messy. And he invites us to participate in it. It's not just Jesus, but 2 Corinthians 1.5 says, For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, you notice this? Sufferings of Christ are ours, they belong to us also. So also our comfort is abundant through Christ. That ox again, you see. Life is cleaner if we avoid suffering. Life is cleaner if we do what we want instead of what Jesus wants. Life is cleaner and easier if we take the broad road, but God's comfort and blessing come from that messy, suffering work of following in the steps of Jesus. That's the reality. So apply it. Apply it. Apply it to your marriage. Apply it to your family. Apply it to raising your children. Apply it to your relationship with your parents. Apply it to our church. What it means is there's some messy work ahead. In all of these areas, there's some messy work ahead because we're doing God's work. God has called us to labor in these disorderly circumstances. It's not a fairy tale. It's not nice, orderly, in control, regulated by rules kind of life. It's going to be messy. I think we like to think of life like a library. You know, if no one takes books out of the library, everything stays in order. Every book is precisely where it's supposed to be. That's wonderful. Except then what's the point of the library? We sometimes approach life like that. We sometimes approach our marriages and raising children like that. It's better to see your ministry in the church, whatever it is you're responsible for in the church, to see your ministry in your family, as a husband or a wife. Better to see all of that as a farm rather than a library. See, that's what our text is encouraging us to do. To treat it like a library means you're going to insist that it be controlled. Everything happen according to your rules. All the children, all the husbands, all the wives in dewy decimal order all the time. Rules for what you can do and when you can't do it. Hushing everybody, keeping everything organized. But what will happen is you'll be exasperated because people are like oxen. You're bound to burn out, bound to fail. Rather, let's approach life like farmers. It rains when it's not supposed to rain. You're all set to go out into the field, but it's a rainy day. And then it's dry, far longer than you're supposed to have dry weather. It's raining and raining, and finally there's a dry day, and you go out, you're going to take your tractor out, and the tractor doesn't start. You plant, and seeds don't come up. Or you plant, and seeds come up, but rabbits come and nibble at them and eat them up. That's what farming is like. But keep laboring. That's what this text is saying. It's okay. It's okay if life is messy, if things aren't the way you want them. Keep laboring in the field that God has assigned to you, waiting for the harvest. That's the end goal. 
2 Timothy chapter 2 says it's the hard-working farmer who enjoys the fruit of his labor. May God bless you with the fruit of your labors. Amen. Lord, bless us all. Bless us all who are too messy. Bless us all, Lord, who are too neat. Bless us all, Lord, who want to be in control of life so much that we don't allow room for fruitfulness. Bless us all, Lord, who want things just the way we want them so that we're not flexible enough to deal with the challenges of life. Oh, God, bless us with your grace. Teach us your wisdom. Grow us, Lord, and make our lives fruitful for you. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Psalm 65 says beautiful words. You soften the earth with showers and bless its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. May showers of blessing fall on your marriage, on your family, on your life in this church, and may this be a year in which you experience the bounty of God's blessings. Amen.